0: We love books. They teach us new things, expand our horizons, and piss off uptight conservatives who never got to stay for story time at the library. That's why we created our very own storefront at Bookshop.org, where you can find books published by Crooked's imprints, a selection of favorites from the Crooked staff, and lots more. You can even shop my book, Medicare for All, a Citizen's Guide. Look for it in the Crooked Authors section. Bookshop.org directly supports local booksellers, so you won't be personally funding Jeff Bezos' yacht renovations. That's always a plus. Head to crooked.com bookstore to find your next read. America Dissected is brought to you by the De Beaumont Foundation. From clean water to food safety standards to pandemic preparedness, public health saved your life today. At the DeBeaumont Foundation, they create practical solutions that improve the health of communities across the country, enabling everyone to achieve their best possible health. To learn more about how advancing policy, building partnerships, and strengthening systems can make a difference, visit DeBeaumont.org. The state of California bans four popular food additives found in candy, fruit juices, and some desserts. States across the country prepare to start negotiating prescription drug prices. Murderous violence erupts in the Middle East. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al sayed Hey kids, want to know more about the coolest thing in town? It's public health. What's public health, you say? Well, only all the efforts that keep us safe each and every day. Crickets. Yeah. So I'd be the first to admit that uh, public health doesn't make the list of coolest professions. And even if we occasionally try to change that, you and I both know we only usually end up sounding like I just did. Let's face it. We're not running into burning buildings, strumming our guitars in front of thousands, or making second-by-second life-and-death decisions. Okay, that last one, we definitely do. But that's swag gap as today's guests call it, has had a serious impact on our ability to effectively do our work. Look, before I get subtweeted here, is that sub-X now? I love public health, and I think it's one of the most badass professions out there. The work we do protects some of society's most vulnerable people every single day. But I'm a nerd. I like to fancy myself a nerd with some riz, but I'm still a nerd. And a lot of what I think is cool about public health just isn't shared by most people. That swag gap, though, isn't just a matter of winning some popularity contest. It's a matter of our ability to fundamentally do a job. That's because the first word in public health is public, which means there's something about being able to appeal to the public that is absolutely essential to what we do. And when people think we're the antithesis of cool, they're just not as likely to listen to what we have to say. We've talked a lot about our communications challenges, the fact that most of us are trained to think in numbers rather than stories, the fact that the way we explain ourselves is backwards to most people. Only after saying all of our reasons do we actually say what our conclusion is. The fact that we tend to want to be comprehensive rather than concise, losing people in our details. But if all of that is true, this coolness factor is basically our Achilles heel. People don't want to listen to you if they don't like you. and They won't like you if you don't command their attention. Here's the challenge, though. What makes something cool? Think that through for a second. Things that we think are cool are usually edgy or bold or imply some kind of action in the face of risk, come what may. Singing your heart out in front of people you don't know? Cool. Dunking over seven-foot-tall basketball players, also cool. Running toward fires to save lives, also cool. But so much of what people know about public health, telling them not to smoke, to click on their seatbelt, or to watch what they eat, that's like the antithesis of cool. We're anti-boldness personified. Watch that risk, be careful of the consequences. So much of what the public knows about us is about the risky, edgy stuff we tell them not to do. But honestly... That's only a reaction to the risk-averse, individualized version of public health we've become. See, a long time ago, when public health was about taking on the structures that were hurting people, there was a time when public health was known for picking fights with much stronger foes in the name of the public's health and winning. And yeah, that's pretty cool. Rather than just telling people not to smoke, which we should keep doing, by the way, we took on the cigarette manufacturers who were telling them it was fine. Rather than tell people to eat better, we took on the industries who were peddling poisons to kids. And that shit? Picking bold fights with opponents many times your size? That shit's cool. There's a lot we can do to rizz up public health, as the youths say these days. But most of it deals with the margins if we're not serious about rethinking our main purpose. We can't keep being nerds who crunch a bunch of numbers and tell people what they shouldn't do, as much as that's really important. We have to be the nerds who pick fights with bullies who are hurting people. And we have to win. My thoughts only crystallized about this a few weeks back, when I came across a really interesting talk by a thinker who put in words so much of what I had been feeling. That talk was by our guest today, Professor Jarrell Azell, a social epidemiologist and incoming director of the Center for Cultural Humility at UC Berkeley. He joined me to explain public health swag gap and what he thinks we can do about it. Here's my conversation with Professor Jarrell Azell. Okay, can you introduce yourself for the tape?
1: I am Jarrell Azell. I'm an assistant professor in community health sciences at University of California, Berkeley, and I think there's a huge swag deficit in public health. And Jarrell, we're
0: having this conversation right now because I tend to agree. When do you first start thinking about public health's swag problem, or as the youths these days call it, a RIS gap?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think part of it is just based off of personal experience. I mean, when you're working really intimately in public health, so I'm a social epidemiologist and I've had a lot of different uh, jobs in the public health space. Some of it's been very academic. Sometimes I've been working in departments of public health. And it's very clear that uh, these spaces are just very kind of uh, sanitized. They're very dull. They're boring. And you know, at the same time, there's this element of you don't really expect more than that in these spaces. But then you start to wonder, what if they were transformed in these ways, right? If, what if we did treat them like you know, when you're going into I'm um, to say like postal or something like that. It's kind of an old store. But when you go into a space that you want to go into, most people don't look forward to going into a healthcare clinic. They don't look forward to going to the hospital, which makes sense. But what if the experience of being there, the way that you're engaged in terms of your senses, what if it mirrored one of these places where you go shopping, right? if it was like a Whole Foods or something along these lines, and I found that to be a really compelling way to look at some of the issues we have when you think about the gaps between the uh, public and then the public health administration and clinical force.
0: Yeah. You know, I'd even take it a step further and say it's not just that our spaces tend to have a real swag problem is, is unfortunately, that sometimes our people do too, or at least yes. the conversations that we share when we're together. Like I've seen some super cool public health folks and they get with public health folks and you're like, "What? why?
1: Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And I, I want to ask you, what, what do you think is behind that? So I think one thing that's really fascinating as we kind of take the broader view of all this is, is this idea of personality. So um, when you're in one of these spaces, this is not something that's really taught. Now, maybe more, you know, when you're into things, the clinical side, you think about bedside manner, you think about these types of dynamic. but your typical person who's working in public health, the people who are, you know, at the front desk, these aren't skills that are necessarily taught. And even when you think about bedside manner, that's not really expected either, right? It's not like you're going into sales, right? You're not an MBA. So that, that type of skill... Uh, isn't something that's cultivated. And also the types of people who have the personality where they're going to be more into sales and things along these lines or tech, uh, it's just not something that you're going to find in terms of public health. So I think it's kind of coming from both of these directions. Um, But I also think another part of it is because of the gravity of what we're dealing with, right? We're dealing with very complicated things that relate to life and death in a lot of cases. So you don't expect the type of levity Our humor, you know, that you might get in some of these other areas. But I do think part of it also just the fact that this is not going to attract people who have those really, you know, not to knock folks in public health. I'm in public health, but those really dynamic, outgoing personalities. You're just not going to have that. And if you do have it, it's going to get suppressed by virtue of the type of work that you're doing and the folks that you're around.
0: Draw what you're trying to say about me, man.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you're 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 one of the exceptions, but it's true. And I don't, I'm I'm hesitant here to you know go out on a limb and start knocking certain public health characters, but like if you think about any of the 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 more prominent. Uh, researchers out there who are doing epidemiology or their clinicians, whatever the case may be, they don't really have these really outsized personalities, right? Mm. So I think in terms of that connection piece, it's not really there because it's not perceived as a need necessarily. Um, And another thing that I'll I'll mention here is also thinking about how uh, there's a lack of competition. So in typical cases, right, as a consumer, when you decide which stores you do or don't want to go to, you have options, right? If you don't like Target for whatever reason, like the red is too much for you, right, you can go to Walmart, right? So um, you you have those options, right, in terms of how you are engaged with your senses in terms of the customer service. But when it comes to public health, you don't really have that. Now, to an extent, you might say you have that when it comes to how you pick them uh, A healthcare provider, but by and large, you don't have the same options. And I think when there is that lack of competition, there's no real impetus to change because it's like, well, there's only one show in town. So it's either us or nothing at all. And I think either directly or indirectly, uh, public health is very, very aware of that. And they leverage that in ways that causes them to be a little bit complacent with how they present themselves to the public.
0: You know, one of the places where I think this has shown up pretty dramatically isn't necessarily just in the spaces that public health controls, which, you're right, tend to be painted in government sterile. And they're generally uninviting. Uh, as you point out in, in, in one of the slides that you show in, in a talk that you give on this, they, they tend to look like prisons. Yeah. Most of the folks yeah. aren't excited to go there. Uh, and we don't do much to, to try and dress them up. But where I thought this really showed up is in the way that we communicate. And and this is the thing about it is you know traditionally in public health a lot of what we do has nothing to do with the spaces that you come see us at it's it's actually yes. what we do mm-hmm. in the spaces in which you are living and working and, and and playing and when we show up in in the competition for ideas we bring that same complacency about what we're carrying and so we assume that because we have science at our backs we have a monopoly on what people will listen to, and that everyone's yes. just going to be drawn by our expertise and the many credentials behind our name, and listen to what mm-hmm. we have to say. And so we say it in, in, in frankly the most uncharismatic way, and yes. right. Right. and we almost pride ourselves in that. Like there's a pride that's taken in being as dry and mm-hmm. multifactorial as possible, rather than having yes. a message with a pop. Right, and that inability to think about our brand or how our brand projects, it speaks to a certain failure to appreciate this current moment. So I kind of want to ask you, where do you think our risk gap developed? Where did it start where we just sort of fell behind? And do you think this is just essential to what we do? Or do you feel like this is something that has grown over time?
1: Yeah, I, I think if you if you tried to construct a timeline for when there was this divergence, which is to say, well, at some point, everybody did this one thing because marketing as a philosophy, as a paradigm, wasn't really a theme. I think that's fair enough. But what I think you would find is that public health is government in a lot of cases, right? We think about public health the health department as the government, and the government is meant to be serious, right? It's meant to be pretty austere, so it just kind of naturally flows that your typical government-affiliated entity is also going to be in that particular way. And there's, um, I'm not sure if you've ever read a uh, work from uh, Max Weber before. He's a sociologist. Mm-hmm. And what he essentially says is there's this idea of a bureaucracy, right, which we, which we all know about. And what it says is that the government is essentially meant to be, also. It's meant to be kind of boring because it's such a serious thing, right? It really is a center of gravity in terms of our rights, our capacity to do X, Y, and Z, right? Our infrastructure, all these other things. So it makes sense. And one part of his logic is if it was a little bit more playful, right? If it was like a circus or something like that in terms of how it marketed itself, then people wouldn't take it as seriously. So uh, it'd be a bit of a leap to say that people are following Weber, you know, was writing this stuff hundreds of years ago. But there is something in terms of how government is projecting itself. As an authority. And there is this sense, which is a bit logical, that when people are more dressed up and formal, right, when they're in their business suits, we take them more seriously than somebody who's wearing, you know, jean shorts, right, in a tank top. So there's something very logical about it. But what has happened over time is that, I think, to your point, public health hasn't adapted. Uh, And there is this assumption Again, to your point that because we are experts, because we have these credentials, you've got the MD or the PhD or the MPH behind your name, that you are an authority and whatever I say is really going to be golden. And uh, COVID, and it didn't just start with COVID, but COVID was a big, um, you know, really a big reckoning point, I think, for a lot of us in public health and realizing we don't have that type of cloth that we thought that we did. And that uh, people are looking beyond the affiliations and the accreditations to say, what else are you about? And the other piece here that I think weaves all this together is think about this idea of relatability. So when you are operating as a clinician, you go out, for the most part, I won't speak for you because I don't know what you're thinking in your head, but in general, you'd probably say most clinicians don't enter into a clinical space and think, I wonder if this patient thinks I'm relatable or not. Uh, they're probably more thinking does this person think that I'm credible right Do they think I'm qualified but the type of insecurity of whether or not'm relatable is not something that really exists in public health the way that it does in other spaces where we actually do care a lot more in those other spaces about the extent to which the people who work for the organization are actually looking like and reflecting the the population of the public um, and another thing I'll mention I'm kind of thinking about this idea of experience so if you think about your typical store we'll say like you know your fortune 500 companies take something like apple right steve jobs was hugely hugely into design from you know from the whole 360 type of experience right uh both with the product, how the product is packaged, not to mention what the product does and how it's designed, but those little minute details are really important to him. And then furthermore, if you go into an Apple store, that is a very unique experience, right? That's unlike any other store that you'll likely go into, like a Best Buy or, you know, back in the day, something like Circuit City. So he recognized that. And granted, we shouldn't expect public health to go out and get, you know, super fancy uh, buildings with, with all glass, but there is, there could be a reasonable expectation that they do more subtle things to improve the spaces, right? And I think this happens in two ways. It's kind of those little gestures that communicates to clients or patients in that setting that they actually care about our experience here, right? I'm just walking into a space that feels like a, you know, mental health ward from the 1910s. I'm going into a space where there's, you know, a little bit of music playing or something like that, right? Or there's some flowers up or there's some paintings or artworks and things like that, little things that signal that we're aware that you're here, we're not taking that for granted, and we also want to make a connection with you, right? We like the same things that you do, and we're not operating from this ivory tower, which is one of the big perceptions of public health Right now, I,
0: I really appreciate a, a number of points you made. I want to draw out one of them, which is that you know, government by its nature uh, can't can't have swag, right? And, and yeah. I appreciate you yeah. bringing up Weber and the, the the nature of the bureaucracy. But I argue that a a lot of the corporations that we know have a certain kind of swag, they're huge bureaucracies. They're just yeah. bureaucracies sure. that care a lot about how they're perceived. The second though is that, you know, I, I think about the canonical government good guys and gals and they're fire people, right? The yes, fire sure. the firefighters got a lot of swag. There's there's no yeah, question sure. that if somebody yeah. walks by like, and, and the way I think about swag is like when a, when a kid interacts with them, either a teenager or like a toddler, there's just mm-hmm. a sense of awe, right? And the reason yes, right, that right, they right. got a yeah. sense of awe is because those people run into burning buildings. Mm-hmm, and sure. I wonder, you know if a lot of the way we do public health has been about curtailing the implicit risk that people face in their lives and there is something mm. about risk that that is you know i think that is foundational to having charisma right it's like sure. you know when when you see a rock star up there on stage there's something about you thinking man if that was me i think i'd i think i'd die <laughs> Right. (laughs) If if you see an incredible athlete, right. They're doing what they did. And you're like, man, that, that is like putting Mm -hmm. yourself out there like that. And then you think about firefighters and they just run into burning buildings, which is insane. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it's incredible that (laughs) they do it, but like most of us, right. Wouldn't willingly every day sign up to run into burning buildings. And I I would argue that most people in public health say, no, I do that every day. And, and they'd be right, but it's, it's, it doesn't, we don't, it doesn't come out the same way. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, for a, um, for a, Profession that has, in some respects, framed itself around telling people not to do risky things, is almost yeah. like the anti-swag, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, And, yeah. and yeah. I, I yeah. wonder if it's just essential to what we do that you know we come off as being finger waggy know-it-alls rather than folks who are willing to brave the odds. And you know, I. I Want to hear your thoughts on that. I got a follow-up question about what it means about how we should be thinking about public health.
1: Yeah. Well, if you think about uh, public health kind of broadly right now, we talk a lot about innovation. This has been a big thing for a long time. We're talking about AI and things along these lines. There's this sense from the perception of public health leaders that we are innovative, right? We're developing new treatments. We're, you know, designing new ways to engage with our patients and our communities. But this is speaking to the, 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 the product, right? It's speaking to the product, but it's not speaking to how the product is communicated. And as you are aware, right, there's a whole field for public health communications or health communication, right? But it really does not signal this interest in making that relatability connection, right? There are a lot of studies out there, which you're also probably aware of, right, that they have like really cool names. They'll put like, you know, like the the lit study or something like that, like things that are obviously pandering to a certain population, but they're not really making this case for how we as public health workers or practitioners are similar to you. We're just trying to speak your language, but we're not trying to say that we have this sort of, you know, comparability. And if you take somebody right now, think about like people who have been regarded as as cool in public spaces, right? Think about somebody like uh, President Barack Obama, right? Was considered very cool from the outset. That was a big part of his appeal. Worked for him, worked against him, in, in other cases, but by and large, was considered a really cool president. I right? think about somebody like Jay Z. Now, we don't expect someone like you or Doctor Fauci to to have that type of swag and that type of personality. But that doesn't mean, again, that's kind of the extreme of it. So the argument isn't when we talk about swag that you have to be, you know, decked out and in, in Prada and Gucci and things like that. It's just to say, can we focus a little bit more on relatability and create an experience for people, recognizing that the experience is a big part of, of healthcare. Right? It's not just about what you're getting. It's very much about how you get it. And that's a part of public health that's really been lost or arguably was never even there. So there's also that argument that it was never really there. And we're kind of just catching up and picking up on trends in other spaces. But one place where we really don't innovate in public health is communication something we really do poorly. And and you probably, I mean, I don't think there's any public health program for NPHs where they teach you about marketing. They teach about communications, and that is slightly different from marketing, right? There's kind of like this thin margin between them, but there is a distinction between those two. So yeah, it's really complicated. And, And I know when I try to rack my brain and think about who are the folks out there who are really recognizable, who are known by the public when it comes to public health, there aren't many right? And, and that makes sense in a way where we just don't expect scientists to be very cool, to be a, you know, like a Bill Nye the science guy type. But uh, what if that changed, right? What if that was a paradigm that we, that we sought to change? That I think could be really impactful.
0: I also think there's a paradigmatic shift that we need to make in public health because when I think about what makes what makes charisma, it is a level of boldness, it's a level of edginess, Yes. It's a level of authenticity, and it is a willingness to to play a role you didn't have to. And mm. I think what has happened in the last thirty years, in terms of what public health is and 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 has been willing to do, has shifted the way that the public thinks about us. And let me let me try this on for size. Sure. I think that in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, public health turned inward rather than being the folks who are willing to take on the powerful to protect the public. We became ordinary about individual risk factors. And as we individualized, mm-hmm. we went from being the folks who step up to those who are more powerful to the folks who wag their finger at you to tell you, don't eat this. Don't Mm -hmm. smoke. Click it or ticket. And not to say that those things aren't important. They're very important. And I don't want anybody listening here to be like, well, wow, okay, Abdul's encouraging. No, (laughs) no. I'm just saying that when we stopped being the folks who thought about the environment writ large and started being the folks who are a lot more focused on individualized behaviors, we lost a lot of our risk. And Mm -hmm. I think that there is a way for us to regain it. When we talk about things like air pollution, Or enforcing on that major factory that's polluting in those kids' lungs. Or it's taking on the major corporations that, you know, spilled opioids out into our communities. Or it's being willing to step up to to policymakers who uh, are clearly, right, on the take from a large corporation that's more interested in their well-being than yours. When we advocate for something like universal health coverage, that is the kind of thing that people look at and say, okay. All right. There's a, there's an edge there. There's a risk there. Those folks are putting themselves on the line for me rather than Mm -hmm. just telling me not to eat stuff. Right. Exactly. And I think that's a, that, that is a, a, a philosophical regression to what was safe Mm -hmm. that then made us look like people who aren't willing to actually pick fights that matter. And until we start doing that, I think we continue to move out. And, you know, this is an issue I know you're from Uh, right outside Flint. And you've you've done a lot of work on the Flint water crisis. And when I think about somebody who's got uh, a lot of charisma, I think about Dr. Mona, right? What did Dr. Mona do? She stepped Mm -hmm. up to the state of Michigan when they wanted to deny that there was a water crisis in Flint that was poisoning thousands of kids. She stepped up and said, you need to pay attention to this data and you need to come to grips with what you've done to these children. And I Mm -hmm. think there was a moment where folks were like, well, damn. <laughs> she yeah, got it right. Yeah. Right? Exactly. yeah so yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to, to to sort of ask you, as you think about where we go from here, what does it look like to get our our swag back?
1: Good question. So just, just to piggyback for a second off of your comment about Dr. Mona. So one thing that was really impressive about that case, and I know Dr. Mona somewhat, because um, I still actively do work in Flint, is that uh, she was one of very few who was willing to say the things that she said, right? Now, maybe it wasn't one of these really dramatic cases where like, you know, 10 years from now they make a biopic about her, but it was enough to say like there were some consequences for her decision. And one thing that I found as I was talking with various people in Flint, that there's actually a considerable amount of jealousy for what she did. Uh, in part because she really broke that paradigm of we are scientists, right? We pay attention to data, we are not advocates, we are not political, and there's no way to talk about the water crisis without getting somewhat political about it, right? You have to start singling out specific politicians who were doing right or wrong, but there was something inherently political about what she did, and there's a lot of resistance to it because the idea of what a clinician should be is very much antithetical to what she was doing. To be out there, to be, you know, like, you know, really kind of want to press tour circuit, having these conversations was very new, right? It's very novel. It's not something that we've ever really seen, especially not in the context of a place like Flint, right? Um, Another thing that I'll mention in terms of this kind of lineage of public health advocacy is thinking about those truth ads. Do you remember those related Mm. to, to smoking Yeah. So um, truth ads, I think, came out maybe like 15 or 20 years ago. And um, they'd be these ads where you have people who were typically like former smokers with some pretty grave, you know, consequences as a result of smoking for. You remember those, right? Yeah. So they they come on from time to time and people would watch them and, you know, they would be kind of freaked out by it, right? This person's lost their teeth because of this, right? Like it it was pretty, pretty provocative, pretty much, you know, in people's faces. Now, I don't think that there's probably strong empirical evidence that shows when people watch these ads, they start to stop smoking. But the fact that public health came out and said, we care about this, we think this is important for us to acknowledge, and we're gonna put it out there in this really raw way, that's very provocative, right? That's very powerful. And I think even those people who were smokers, they have to look at it and say like, yeah, your point, like, dang, that's something. Um, and that's not something that we really do anymore. We're, we're much more tame. And um, it's hard to look at something like COVID and say, oh, maybe we could apply that model to COVID, because uh, there's not a direct kind of apples to apples comparison there. But we didn't engage in ways that made the public feel like we were relatable, right? We were in the ivory tower. We were wagging that finger at them, right? And we were being super paternalistic. And, you know, in this day and age, and arguably even before this day and age, people don't really respond well to that. So- when I start to think about what are the solutions to this, I think there's a couple different paths that you can go. Now, on one level, you would just say that we just need to think more about relatability. As a genuine question, when you are in a clinical setting, when you're in a classroom as I am, right, with students, to what extent are those people looking at you as relatable, and what does relatability get you? So another thing that sometimes I talk about is this idea of equity clout. So it's very similar to swag. You could say that it gives you uh, more of this swag. But equity clout is thinking about what is your level of authenticity? How trustworthy are you? And then as a result of that, how much authority do you have? So to really amplify those types of things, we have to ask those fundamental questions, right? And it's not just the patience of the students for engaging with this, like, you know, when you go to Walmart and you're in line and checking out, right, what about that cashier? Do they look at you and think you're relatable? And not just because of how you dress, your race, or ethnicity, but in terms of how you engage with them. Because there's this huge buffer that I don't think existed 50 to 60 years ago, right? Where you went in, you knew your PCP and you had some sort of connection, that feels very gone. Now, I mean, it feels very much gone. And part of it, I think, is because because medicine is very much politicized now in ways that it probably wasn't 50 or 60 years ago, right? So, operationalize that, we have to ask that basic question. Am I relatable or not? And we have to stop avoiding some of these more complicated conversations about people's backgrounds and the politics. I'm not saying, you know, now that we need, uh, when we do our intake forms to have questions on there about people's politics, but we have to start thinking about people more holistically because that's how they look at us. Right on one level, when you go on that clinic, they see you as a physician, but on another level, they see this person probably has some politics. They may or may not agree with mine. They may feel this way or that way about these social issues. So So we really have tried to be agnostic to those issues, and it's very much to the detriment of public health. So um, the way I see it, I think it's a long road. It's not something that I think is being prioritized, but I think we are getting to a point of at least recognizing that there's a huge gulf between us and the public, and having credentials is not enough to make them trust us or want to engage with what we have to offer. I don't know. if
0: If you put Anthony Fauci in some buffs, I listen to him. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Right.
1: Yeah, and you give him some. But you saw. I mean, honestly, and that that's a subtle point that people may not know we're talking about there. But when they did that with uh, with our governor uh, here in Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, like, are people going to vote for her because of that? Probably not. But at least it's like you know, you know, let your hair down a little bit. You know, we don't have to be so serious all the time. And know when you're going in to get you know tested for chlamydia, you don't want to have you know a, 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 a rollicking time. But there is this argument that we can kind of. Rest a little bit. We can be ourselves a little bit more. And that may be just enough to get a portion to see us as more than, you know, the institution and the man. So, yeah, yeah get the buffs out if we can.
0: Budget hey, for not. That. <laughs>
1: But um, yeah. I'm, I'm
0: gonna talk. I'm gonna talk to the the uh, county executive and see what he
1: thinks. Yeah, um, let's do it.
0: Let's do it for public for public purposes only. I mean, this is an
1: experiment. If you went into the clinic and you had some buffs on, like you cannot tell me, yeah. I mean, it's not gonna be like, oh, I'm gonna come back here, you know, like every other month. But like, people would have a very different perception of you, right? There's no There's doubt no about doubt. it. It may not be worth the money, but it would, right? The same time, There's it's no things I'm but it would. Happen. Next time I do a yeah. press
0: conference, I'm just going. I'm gonna pull down my buffs a little bit. I would love it. <laughs> We'll be back with more of my conversation with Professor Jarrell Izzell after this break. American sected is brought to you by Article, as is the chair I am wont to sit in while watching my favorite programming. Look, what do you want in furniture? You want it to be comfortable. You want it to look great. You want it to last a long time. And you don't want it to break the bank. And those are all the reasons to love Article. They believe in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online only model, they have some really delightful prices too. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, and Scandian boho designs make furniture shopping simple. Article's team of designers are all about finding the perfect balance between style, quality, and price. They're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and looks good doing it. Article offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. Plus, they won't leave you waiting around. You pick the delivery time and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Article's knowledgeable customer care team is there when you need them to make sure your experience is smooth and stress-free. Article's offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash AD, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash AD for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Get ready to be inspired. Marguerite Casey Foundation is on a mission to create a world where all communities are represented in our economy and democracy. And they're not just dreaming about it, they're making it happen with their 2023 Freedom Scholars. These scholars aren't your average academics. They're visionary leaders who are reshaping the future. Meet one of them, Professor Adom Gitachu. She's committed to bringing about a future in which people have the resources that allow them to be the best versions of themselves. The Freedom Scholars are unleashing groundbreaking ideas that'll transform our democracy, economy, and society. Learn more about Adom and the rest of the brilliant 2023 Freedom Scholars by visiting caseygrants.org or connect with them on social media at CaseyGrants. Imagine a brighter future with Marguerite Casey Foundation. And we're back with more of my conversation with Professor Jarrell Azell. there are a couple of things that that, that you shared that I really want to pick up on. The first is that we tend to think of our communication as episodic, meaning we only show up when we got something to say. And when you Mm -hmm. talked about relatability, right, the first piece of that word is relate. And Mm -hmm. sometimes you just got to build a relationship with folks. And it's just showing up, you know, in the mundane moments um, to talk about the things that people are thinking about. Uh, in getting out in the community. And I think there's there's this sense that sometimes we only need to show up in a crisis and then we yeah. uh wield our credentials over folks and they shall listen to mm-hmm. us. Rather than having yeah. been out there and having conversations that um that that really focus on the issues that are that exist in the nitty-gritty of people's lives. And I think there's also a, a true elitism problem. Then just the way that we yes. talk. Yes. Mm-hmm. We use words that I don't think we think through, but feel intentionally uh, elitist. That they are yes, they are big words to describe small mm-hmm. ideas that um, feel like we're talking down to folks. And when we're engaged in a discussion about something as critical as people's health, nobody wants to be to be made to feel stupid. And unfortunately, yes. that's kind of how we talk. And then when people mm-hmm. challenge us. Rather than trying to explain ourselves in more simple language and, and having the humility to engage and to recognize that the only value of our work is that other people pick it up and do something with it, right? We tend to fall back on our laurels and try and, yes, you know, statistic fair. the hell out of people. And that's just not yeah. effective. Mm-hmm. And then the, yeah. the last piece is um, thinking a little bit about uh, about how we um, engage in the challenges that are a problem to people but don't feel like a problem to us. And that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges I've always seen in terms of the way we communicate. Like, you know, you think about the the vaccine campaign, and we've talked about this before on the show, but the number one thing that undercut the vaccine campaign is the fact that a lot of the folks who did not get vaccinated for COVID-19 were folks who did not have health insurance. So imagine... When we deny them access to healthcare, meaning you cannot come to this clinic or hospital and get the care you need. And then all of a sudden, we're like, but here's some care for something you don't even know you obviously need because you're not even sick yet. So imagine you're somebody with diabetes. You've had to ration your insulin your entire life. And they're like, I know you won't give me the medicine I know I need. And now you're coming to me with some medicine that you're telling me I need, but but didn't exist last year. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and and we don't have the empathy to to step into somebody's shoes and be like, I wonder how that would make me feel. And Mm -hmm. I I think that really, I mean, you know, we think about inequality, we think about in this grand sense of like the extremely rich and then extremely poor. But we don't think about the inequality of experience and the fact that, you know, what seems plainly obvious to someone with a PhD in epidemiology or another public health field is obviously not plainly obvious because it took mm-hmm. you how many years to get that stupid degree? And right, then you yeah. you can't sort of climb down your ivory tower ladder and put yourself back in the life of somebody and be like, I wonder how this seems to you or how you're experiencing it. And what can I say and how can I say it in a way that explains it to you in language that is not the one I took seven years to, to learn, right? But is language that Absolutely. I you know walked into my college knowing, right? Because that's the reality of the majority of people that we're trying to, um, support and empower. And I, I just think that, you know, part of this is this, this notion that we think we're smarter than other people when really more than anything else, it's a privilege gap. And then we just exploit Mm -hmm. that privilege gap in our discussion and wonder why people on the other side of it don't want to listen to us.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I couldn't have said it better myself. There's a huge, set of presumptions that come with the work that we do, we have, and, and, and granted, you know, when you have knowledge and expertise, it is hard to look over, I'm sure, and, you know, at a patient who doesn't have the same uh, competencies that you do and say, I'm going to listen to you and let you kind of articulate what your condition is, right, and what you think is the best way to approach it. But that really is the essence of shared decision-making. But to really kind of suspend that um, the, that cloth that we have, that is a really difficult thing to do, right? And it's not restricted just to public health. It's a universal thing. Anytime that you have more power capital of other people, you think I've got something you don't. So I'm I'm really not in a position where I should be listening to what you have to say. And yet these are what people are screaming out saying is essential in order to make that connection with them. So, you know, the question of what does it take to get there? On one level, I think it comes back to this idea of evaluation. So everything that we've talked about here, I think people could be listening and say, well, how do you measure any of that, right? How do you measure a person's equity clock, right? How do you measure their swag? Those are very difficult things to articulate, right? And certainly, like, there's no clinic that has, you know, a form that patients fill out to say, hey, you know, how much swag do you think your doctor has Five-star swag
0: or four-star
1: swag? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as cool as that would be, right? But on some level, it's like, maybe we kind of need it. And obviously, that would drive clinician's crazy to have to live up to that standard as well. But those aren't things we track, right? We track patient satisfaction, but it's not really along the lines of like, when I talk with this clinician, like they are respectful of my race and ethnicity, right? That's not a question. When i talk with this clinician, they're respectful about my politics, right? Or they ask about my politics. All these different facets that would give us a sense on the other end as epidemiologists, as healthcare administrations in terms of connections, we don't really capture, right? We have very antiquated metrics for looking at that patient experience. And that's why people are starting to tune out. And that's why we're having these deep, deep, deep uh, persistent disparities, because people don't trust us, right? They don't feel any connectivity with us. And it it seems, at least to me, very obvious that that's a problem. Obviously, it's less clear what the solutions are, but it seems like it's kind of hiding in plain sight, some of these issues.
0: I I want to close out just on two questions. One is about the efforts that sometimes we make. And one of the Words that came out of our conversation that I think is really important to remember is authenticity, and yes. sometimes in public health you people try to make up this swag gap by doing some of these just the most cringe things yeah. and, <laughs> and I, I wanted I wanted to ask you, you know why do you think we keep, we keep doing stuff like this it's just everybody knows it's ridiculous and yeah. And yet we do it, and then not only that, but in public health, we're like, here we are, right? And, but, and yeah. uh, in your talk, you cite that, that famous meme of, like, how are you, fellow youths? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and it yeah. just feels yeah, yeah, yeah. so absurd. Yes. Why do you that's think right, we do right. that? Rather than just showing up authentically as who we are and respecting that, like, you know, many of us are in this field because because deep down inside, we really love numbers and we're super nerds, but there's a way right. of communicating that love of numbers that's authentic to who you really are and that people will respect and appreciate, right? And but you can't show up and try and be something you're not. Why do you think we keep doing this?
1: I think I think part of it is because it's low-hanging fruit. It's not that hard to have, you know, uh, a certain week dedicated to a certain population or a certain study and just like, add in some cool hip words, add in, you know, you know, for example, there could be something that's very kind of meta about the talk that I gave. The fact that I'm introducing swag, people become more interested in automatically, right? I had people write me saying like, hey, like, what is this? Like, you're talking about swag, what is that about? And that's kind of the point, right? That when you introduce something new that's kind of silly and fun, but also you look at it and say, that is possible you could have a lack of this one thing, then that becomes interesting to people, right? Now, obviously, you have to go in and deliver and make it compelling, but at least on the surface, that's not something that we do. So when you think about what's been done historically, I think one part you would say, and I'm not trying to make this, um, you know, something that that's ageist, but it, it is a generational difference. So if you kind of spend your life on the fringes of, you know, the millennial culture, and you're paying attention to the news from time to time, you see TikTok is a big thing. You're going to say, let's go to TikTok, and that's where we should, you know, recruit for our study. Right? Meanwhile, you're going to get a very specific type of person from there. That's not going to be totally representative. So. The People are in public health are kind of grasping onto whatever they're hearing certain words that are being used by youth and saying hey let's do that because then once they see those words they're going to want to jump into that study right and these things aren't really happening so the other part of it right and you know we've been a bit cynical about these folks you would say well you know they're well intentioned and I do think that's very true right because I've certainly had studies Definitely. where I've been tone deaf but they're well intentioned right but still there's this very obvious dimension of if you want to connect with these groups, you need to learn what their pain points are, right, or what their touch points are. And we also don't do that. Like how often does a public health department or a clinic go out and say, hey, we're going to, you know, try to educate you around prep, or we're going to talk about, you know, getting screened for HIV, AIDS, what sort of things would you like us to talk about? How would you like it to look? Uh, the other thing that I'll say just quickly here is that one thing we've done, I think, well, is like we are a little bit more inclusive in our advertising. So when you see commercials for different types of medications, like you'll see a fairly diverse group of people, right? That is a fast improvement because 10, 15, 20 years ago, only people who appeared to be getting any of these medications or interventions were pretty much, you know, white people. So that is an improvement. So it's not all bad. But the disconnection comes from the fact that we don't talk to people to say, what would you like to see? And we don't do that because we're looking at the evidence and saying, I don't need to ask you because I've already read this lit review about it. So, you know, I'm just going to rely on that. And that is kind of being, you know, really linked up and chained to evidence as opposed to experience. And those are pretty significantly different things, and potentially at least.
0: Last question I want to leave you with is a lot of our listeners may not work in public health. Some of them do, but most folks don't. And they're involved in public health conversations consistently. I mean, we just had a new COVID nineteen vaccine drop, and I like how you said drop. Well, like it's a new album. Know, I'm, just, out. I'm, just like trying, like, I'm just trying to, drink, try drink. to take, take notes. <laughs> I've been taking notes
1: all this entire conversation. It's like, just speak like, so you like, say, like Drake. Drake's album just came out. Okay, <laughs> yep. got it. Got it.
0: Uh, so, so now we got this new COVID nineteen vaccine, and you've got folks trying to have conversations with their loved ones about taking it. And it's hard not to feel school marmy, right? It's hard not mm. to feel finger waggy, and yep. and and I think that you know that that sort of the public health uh, risk gap translates even into having public health conversations, even if you're not in public health. So, yes, how sure. do you recommend you know folks out there doing the good work, whether they're advocates or they're professional professionals in public health, or just trying to have a conversation with grandpa? Like, how do you bring some of this um, to your uh, communication and how do you do it in an authentic and honest way?
1: So that's, a, that's an excellent question. So in my opinion, I'm going to I'm going to lean a little bit on the evidence that I've read versus what feels like something that's fairly intuitive to me, at least. So I think with all this type of work, anything that's related to persuasions, persuading people, it usually falls along one or two lines. So one line is going to be I'm going to make an ethical argument for you. right? So If you take something like diversity trainings, which is something we do, we say, you know, you should take this training on anti-racism because it's the right thing to do and makes you a good person. So that's one argument. And what we know from COVID is that that does not resonate with a large number of people. And more importantly within that, it's also kind of irrespective of race, ethnicity, class, et cetera, et cetera, which is to say when people hear that, they don't feel like this is really a moral thing. It's not ethical for me to take this vaccine. There's something more to it. So that's one path. The other path is a more practical one where we say you should take this because it's going to offer these particular types of benefits, right? And on one level, You're kind of making the same case, but you're also extracting out that moralistic argument, right? And what we saw during COVID was really not, in my mind, I mean, it was definitely resistance to vaccines and public health, but it's also resistance to people telling you what to do. Right. And people making it seem like you were bad if you didn't do that particular thing. And for those of us who are pro-vaccine, like us, right, we'd say, well, actually, yeah, maybe it does make you a bad person to not want to do this. But that is a very heavy-handed message. And that was the one that initially kind of came out, right? We did spend a little bit of time talking about collectivism, but we're not a collectivist culture, right? We have collectivist cultures in the United States, but by and large, we aren't that. So you're delivering a message when you are making that more humanist message about collectivism, but that's not us. We are not really a community. Driven type of country. Like we have our ethnic enclaves in places like Detroit and elsewhere, right? But by and large, that's not what we are. So the message would just inherently wrong right from the get go. Now, does that mean if we had gone with a more, one of these more practical approaches of saying if you do this, like it's, you know, going to contribute to better health for you, et cetera, et cetera? Maybe that would have worked a little bit better. But in general, we went in too heavy handed and that really just turned off a lot of people. So I think when we're in these spaces, it's worthwhile for us to think about those two avenues, right? Either I'm going to give you that heavy-handed response for the ethics of it, and sometimes that does work, or I'm going to give you the more practical side. And then the other part of it, so folks don't end up, you know, tearing their hair out over um, <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner, is saying, "Well, some people they're just not going to get there, right?" If you are just Adamantly opposed to this idea that you should have to do anything related to public health, that kind of comes from this policy type of uh, this overarching policy type of idea. There's not going to be any number of things that you can say that they're convert a person. So I think for everybody's sanity, it's worthwhile to think about that. You know, probably relatively small fraction of people who aren't going to be moved at all. Um, The other thing that I will say is people, when you talk about authenticity and authority, that comes from lived experience. So um, again, as a clinician or even as a researcher, when you are across from that patient or the research participant, on some level, they want to know, have you gone through this too? Right. If you're telling me that I should be taking this diabetes medication, have you taken it before? Do you have diabetes? Does anybody in your family have it? Right. And we're not going to like go out and try to get diabetes right as practitioners, but it's a legitimate point. Right. Mm-hmm. We expect people who are telling us to do certain things that have lived that experience. And when that doesn't happen, there's this huge disassociation. So when people during COVID were observing their politicians going out unmasked, not social distancing, that contributed more and more to that disassociation. Right. And we're all just people. Right. We're all kind of slipping and, you know, sometimes cutting corners when it comes to these regulations. But those things add up. And if you're not living what you're saying you're living, then that's going to be very problematic and rightfully so. Well, on that note, we really,
0: really appreciate you uh, coming and, and educating us on this uh, this swag gap. And uh, I promise we're going to do the best we can in the most authentic way possible to, to address it. And we'll uh, be watching. You know, when I, <laughs> when I tip those buffs down, you know that's for you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll be looking for that.
0: Well, look, we uh, we really appreciate you. Our guest today was uh, Professor Jarrell Azell. He is an assistant professor in community health sciences. Uh, and he also serves as the director of the forthcoming Berkeley Center for Cultural Humility. Uh Jor-El, we really, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you.
1: I appreciate
0: it. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. The state of California is the first U.S. regulator to ban four food additives already banned in Europe. The banned additives include brominated vegetable oil, potassium bromate, propylparaben, and red dye three. These additives are common in candy, juice-based drinks, and some desserts. Predictably, the right is labeling the move as a nanny state trying to tell you what you can and can't eat. But let's cut right to it. I'm not clamoring to eat propylparaben, are you? This is about protecting folks from harmful chemicals they don't even know they're eating and forcing corporations to spend their own money to find healthier alternatives. The truth is they've already found those alternatives. These four have already been banned in Europe and food manufacturers have just had to adjust, albeit their costs are slightly more expensive. Here's the thing though, they just don't want to spend the money to make sure our food is as healthy. And now, they'll have to. Meanwhile, in more local leadership for health, state governments are exploring ways to reduce prescription drug prices for their residents. Taking a page out of the federal government's playbook, many of them are exploring negotiating prescription drug prices on behalf of their residents. Remember, right now, aside from 10 prescription drugs that the federal government will start negotiating for Medicare beneficiaries, the federal government is legally prohibited from bargaining on federal taxpayers' behalf. Don't forget, almost every single one of these drugs is one that the very same taxpayers already paid to discover through grants to scientists. But state governments don't face the same prohibition, and they still negotiate for large numbers of people. So states are stepping into the gap, working out ways to address the ballooning cost of prescription drugs. Eight states, including Maryland, Colorado, and Minnesota, have created price review boards that can limit the costs that either local government entities, or in some cases, individual residents themselves, have to pay for their medications across the state. And that could be a big deal for residents. Finally, a cycle of murderous violence erupted after Hamas attacked southern Israel by land, air, and sea on Saturday morning. The carnage was immense as thousands of rockets were fired into civilian sites and civilians were brutally murdered and taken hostage by militiamen. We taped last week's show on Friday. I haven't had the chance to say this here yet. As a physician and public health leader, I condemn Hamas's brutal attacks on civilians. And that's because civilian lives should always be off limits, because I condemn attacks on all civilian lives. And since the attacks last Saturday, the Israeli military has responded by cutting off food, water, internet, gas, and electricity to Gaza and bombarding what has been called by observers the world's largest open-air prison with missiles, hitting targets including hospitals, mosques, and apartment blocks. As of Sunday morning, more than 2,400 Palestinians have been killed, including 800 children. That also includes 27 American citizens. This is being justified in too many minds as Israel's response to the attack by Hamas, a known terrorist organization. But since when was collectively punishing millions of people justifiable? Since when was bombing hospitals and houses of worship justifiable? What about the 800 children who died? Surely they weren't Hamas terrorists, were they? They can't be responsible for the attack on Saturday. They were born in an open-air prison that has been blockaded economically for decades by the very government that now killed them. We can both condemn the murder of innocent civilians in Israel and in the same breath condemn the murder of innocent civilians in Gaza. In fact, any real belief in the equality of all human life demands it. The innocent Israeli civilians' murder does not trump the humanity of the innocent Palestinians' murder. We talk a lot about health equity on the show. And at the very basis of health equity, the most profound goal is that we value all life equally. And that's just it. It feels right now like there's a double standard. We're appropriately mourning the lost lives of innocent civilians in Israel, condemning the people who took them, while using statistics to sand down the humanity of Palestinians, numbers to be ignored as the collateral damage of a response. They are human. They have dreams and hopes, aspirations and fears, as did the 1,200 civilians who were killed by Hamas. And today, I'm just asking that we venerate their humanity equally. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emilic Frank. Asili Vitopoulos mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Taka Suzawa and Alex Ugiera. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily represent the view and opinion of Wayne County, Michigan or its Department of Health, Human, and Veteran Services.